How does God come into our world? When he finally does show up in person, how does God show up? He shows up as a baby. A tiny little baby who kicks and squirms in his mama's belly. A cute and cuddly little baby who cries and gets fussy and wants to nurse his mama and needs to burp and must have his diapers changed and who takes naps in a donkey's feeding trough and is very needy and dependent on his parents. God comes as a baby, which is why we're going to welcome the babies in here next week. I hope the shock of God coming as a baby hasn't worn off for you. And if that isn't shocking enough, this little baby actually has an army. That's the Greek, really. It has an army of Christmas caroling angels who announce his coming. Imagine that. An army of angels who come Christmas caroling at his birth. Think about that. This little humble gets fussy and wants to nurse his mama and has stinky diapers baby has an army of Christmas caroling angels who announce his birth. And the Christmas carol that they sing announces to sinners from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue these words. Cheer up. God's not mad at you. Isn't that good news of great joy? Listen, Christian, God is not mad at you. You may need to rub that into your pores this morning. God is not mad at you. And that's what the angels in our passage today tell a group of dirty, smelly shepherds. They sing a very catchy chorus of God's not mad at you. Now, of course, God has every right to be mad at us, right? God has every right to be angry with us because we are sinners. We are born into this world as sinners, as rebels, and we love ourselves more than we love God. We love ourselves more than we love other people. We love to be first. We love to be number one. We love to get our way. We love to make everything about us. And we have broken God's law. In short, we're bad and we're guilty. So yes, God has every right to be angry with us. But the Christmas story is all about how God came to deal with our sin. Our sin, which does make God angry. But God loved us so much that he sent a host of Christmas caroling angels who are an army of angels to declare to us that he's not mad at us. And the proof that God's not mad at us is that he also sent a baby to save us. Christmas is all about the fact that because of what Jesus has done, when you turn to him in faith... When you trust him and him alone, then God's not mad at you anymore. In fact, he really loves you. I mean, he really loves you. In fact, this might blow your mind, he actually likes you, believe it or not. There are people in your life that do not like you. 
He really likes you. And he proved it by sending his own son to be born in a manger in a redneck podunk town in Israel. Let's read about it in Luke chapter 2. So turn there in your Bibles. You know the story, but I pray it shocks you once again this morning. I pray that you are awestruck at the baby in the manger. I pray that you leave here today absolutely flabbergasted and full of joy and declaring, God is so good to me. I don't deserve it. Okay, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So the journey from Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph lived, down to Bethlehem was a journey of about 90 miles. And Bethlehem was a small village about seven miles kind of south, southwest of Jerusalem and a very pregnant She's past her due date, Mary, has to make this long 90-mile journey because big government Rome is calling all people to register for their census. But there's a phrase that Luke tells us about Joseph in verse 4 that should make our ears perk up. He was of the house and lineage of David. That phrase is very important to the story that's about to unfold because Joseph was related to King David. He has royal blood flowing through his veins. And he was returning with his very pregnant fiancée, Mary, to Bethlehem, the city of David. It's another significant part of the very familiar story. Why should the fact that Joseph, a descendant of David, returning to Bethlehem, the city of David, stand out to us? Here's why. Because the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David. And the prophet Micah said in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would come from the podunk town of Bethlehem. So we have a descendant of David who shows up with his very pregnant fiancée in Bethlehem. And she's a virgin. And the prophet Isaiah said a virgin was going to come. And so when all this comes together, you're supposed to get what Luke is saying here. That something very big is about to happen. And something very big does happen. Mary... A virgin teenager gives birth to a baby, God's own son. And she wraps, like any mother would, wraps her newborn in swaddling cloths, is how the ESV translates it. Literally, it's cloth strips. So there are these strips of linen that would be wrapped around the arms and the legs of an infant to keep their limbs straight and then as a way to protect them as well. So I'm going to shatter your image of baby Jesus, okay? He was kind of wrapped up like a mummy. That was pretty common in the day. It's what people did, okay? And then Luke tells us in verse 7 that she laid him in a manger, 
I'm about to destroy another image you have of Christmas. If you don't know, the manger was not a little crib. It was actually a feeding trough. The manger is where they would feed their animals, where they would put the hay for their cows and their donkeys. In fact, this is what a manger looked like, okay? Not this wooden thing that we typically think of, right? This is what a manger looked like. And so baby Jesus was wrapped up like a mummy, if you will, and laid down in one of these things. And the fact that Jesus was laid in a feeding trough, a manger like this, is very important to Luke because three times in this chapter, Luke will tell us that Jesus was laid down in a manger. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. It gets repeated three times. If Luke wants you to know anything about this little baby, it's that he took naps in a feeding trough just like that. And Luke mentions this three times because he wants to go out of his way to stress the humility that surrounded Jesus' birth. He wants you to know the humility of this baby king. This king, the king of the universe, the king of kings, was not greeted with fanfare and a Christmas Day parade hosted by Ryan Seacrest or somebody like that. Those people always do the same things. It wasn't a parade through the city streets. You would expect a king like that to come with great fanfare and have this royal entourage. But God came into our world in utter humility and profound weakness. It's incredible. There's no 24-karat gold crib to lay him in. He's just laid in a feeding trough with straw and hay and the crust and crumbs and scraps and leftovers of last night's dinner. Think about that. The God of the universe the eternal Son of God who left the glories of heaven by coming to earth has to sleep where animals eat their food. Shocking. Charles Spurgeon captured this amazing humility when he said, infinite and an infant, eternal yet born of a woman, almighty yet hanging on a woman's breast. Supporting a universe, yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels, yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things, yet the carpenter's despised son. What humility. There's no fancy baby crib from Target. Joseph and Mary did not have those cool walkie-talkie baby monitors where you can watch and listen to your newborn when they sleep. They didn't have a a lullabies playlist on Spotify. They have those, by the way. All they had was a dirty feeding trough in which they would lay their newborn son. And so Jesus takes his first nap in a nasty feeding trough for donkeys and horses. And he's surrounded by the loud noises and the smells of animals and not a lullaby playlist. Now, I want all of you to put yourself in Mary's shoes There's no sanitized hospital. There's no glass crib on wheels that the baby stays in for a few days next to mom's bed until she she leaves for the hospital. There's no nurses to wake you up when you finally start taking a good nap. There's just sheep and donkeys and goats and cows and run-of-the-mill farm animals very close to your newborn baby. And it wasn't because Mary was a first-time teenage mom who didn't know any better. 
It was all part of God's sovereign plan to highlight the humility of his son Jesus as he stepped into this messy, dirty, stinky, sin-filled world. Even though it's not a Christmas carol per se, you might just start singing Amazing Grace if you think long and hard about it. And you might even sing, Away in a food trough, no crib for a bed. But why in the world would Mary and Joseph be in this dirty, filthy farm environment? Luke tells us in verse 7, because there was no place for them in the inn. What was the inn that Luke speaks of? When Luke says in verse 7 that there was no place for them in the inn, we should not think of a Motel 6 or the Holiday Inn. Scholars affirm that Bethlehem wasn't big enough for a nice, fancy hotel, not even a run-down, cheap one. Bethlehem didn't even have a Starbucks, okay? It was a podunk town no larger than a post stamp. It was as redneck and as backwoods as you could get. There is no inn, there is no hotel with a sign that says no vacancies. And so Mary and Joseph actually show up to one of their relatives' houses in this backwoods town. This was Joseph's hometown where he was raised, where he needs a place to stay because he lives up north in Nazareth now. But homes weren't very big back then. In fact, they were quite small. So Mary and Joseph show up, but the house is crowded. Perhaps all of Joseph's relatives have all descended upon Bethlehem because they have to register for uh, the census per Quirinius' orders, as verse 2 tells us. And so Mary and Joseph more than likely slept in the living room or the attached room that housed all of the animals. This was very normal in the ancient Near East. Animals would have been kept indoors during the cold winter nights. And so this is where Mary and Joseph get to sleep. And so here's a picture of what a house may have looked like at that time. Up at the top part, you have this loft where people slept. And down below, you brought in the animals. The Greek word that Luke uses here for in... Cataluma is also used by Luke in chapter 22, verse 11, for the upper room where Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples. And so the inn that Luke speaks of would have been the upstairs bedroom in the house where people slept. Refers to the guest room in the relative's house, which would have been filled beyond capacity with all the other relatives who had to journey to Bethlehem for the census. Bethlehem was not large, and there was simply no other place to stay. So, contrary to what we often hear, and I hate to destroy another uh, idea that you may have of Christmas, Christmas, there was no local hotel with some mean manager that lacks compassion on Christmas Eve for a pregnant teenage mom. The inn, when it says there was no place for them in the inn, is the upstairs bedroom where people slept. There was no room up in that loft area for Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus to sleep. It was too crowded, so they had to sleep downstairs with the animals. So it's not like a hotel owner kicked them out because he had no rooms to offer them. That's a a Western idea that we have imported into the text. So there's not some mean-spirited innkeeper who kicked Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus to the curb in the cold, dark night. That's the tradition that many of us have been taught, but that's not it. So we kind of picture this old curmudgeon at the hotel check-in desk, don't we? Harshly telling this new mom, get out of here. I said, I ain't got no rooms available. I ain't got no rooms. See that blinking neon sign outside? It says, no vacancy. 
Can't you youngins read? What part of no vacancy do you not understand? Now you crazy kids get on out of here. That's what we've kind of been told, isn't it? But that's not what happened. There was no room for them in the upper loft to sleep, so they had to sleep downstairs with the animals. Why did they not let the new mom and baby sleep up there? Maybe it's indicative of the hard-heartedness of the people of Israel's hearts during this time. I don't know. But later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus will finally get an upper room booked. And when he does, he's going to explain to his disciples in the inn, in the guest room, in the upper room, why he came, which was to die for sinners. No room, no space for Jesus to sleep in the upper room at his birth, but there will be room in the upper room as he gets closer to the cross. Because at the end of his life, Jesus books an upstairs guest room to tell his disciples that he was going to die for them. And as Jesus raised the cup at the Last Supper, I like to picture him saying to the disciples, Cheer up. God's not mad at you. So if you're in Christ, cheer up. You're off the naughty list. As Elise Fitzpatrick says, we are all on the naughty list, but because of that little baby, we've been transferred to the nice list. No, better than that, we've been moved to the righteous, forgiven, adopted, and loved list. For those in Christ, and that's the key to God not being mad at you, for those in Christ, we are now God's adopted children, and we are at peace with him, at peace with a holy God. And that's exactly what those Christmas caroling army angels will tell a bunch of smelly shepherds. So look at verse 8, if you will. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host or army praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so our scene switches now to the open fields near Bethlehem. And to whom does this angel appear? Not the priests, not the religious leaders. He appears to shepherds. Dirty, smelly, stinky shepherds who could really use a shower and who desperately need some deodorant in their Christmas stockings. And they see this angel. And Luke tells us that they were filled with a great fear. The Greek is they feared a great fear. But then the angel rushes in to reassure them. And he says, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. If you want to translate it straight into English, the angel says, I evangelize to y'all great joy. I love that. I evangelize to y'all great joy that will be for all people. Today a baby was born for y'all, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. 
And so the angel tells them about the birth of Jesus and where they can find him. The angel tells the shepherds to hightail it to Bethlehem and they will see the sign. A baby will be wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough. That's the sign. Remember what we've seen through this series? God does surprising things. God does crazy things, doesn't he? The angel says, here's how you know that God's not mad at you, okay? I'm going to give you a sign. Here's the sign. You're going to find a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus was easily identified. The shepherds had to be on the lookout for a baby wrapped up in cloth strips like a mummy and lying in a feeding trough. I love this about God. He makes it easy for us to be assured, even if the sign is kind of weird. The angel didn't just say, you're going to find a baby. It was a weird sign. A baby wrapped up in cloth strips like a mummy and lying in a feeding trough. God was making it very easy for the shepherds to believe that this was the Savior, the Messiah. Because when they found this weird scene, then they would know that they found the long-promised Messiah. And that's how God works, right? He does weird, surprising things. A baby wrapped in strips of cloth like a mummy and lying in a feeding trough. And then 33 years later, that baby is grown up and stripped of his clothes and hanging naked on a Roman cross. And then three days later, an empty tomb where the strips of cloth that were wrapped around that dead man's body are then folded nice and neat post-resurrection. Think about that. Jesus comes into the world naked and he's wrapped in linen cloths and he's placed into a stone feeding trough. And then at his crucifixion, he has all of his clothes stripped off of him. He hangs naked and comes down from the cross and he's wrapped in linen cloths and he's placed into a rock tomb. God's making it very easy for us to connect the dots, right? And then you fast forward to Revelation 19 at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And how do God's people show up? We show up in fine white linen. We come into the Christian faith stripped of all of our own righteousness, naked and needing to be clothed, and we are clothed with the fine linen robes of Christ's righteousness. God makes it very easy for us to connect the dots. Was this sign of a baby in a feeding trough weird? Yes. Is it strange? You bet. But it's enough weirdness and strangeness to reassure your heart this Advent season that the gospel is true. Enough weirdness and strangeness to reassure your heart this Advent season that God's not mad at you. The sign that God was not mad at them was this. A baby with his limbs wrapped up very tight like a mummy and asleep in a manger surrounded by smelly farm animals. Huh? I told you God does crazy things. But what's even crazier than all of that is what the angels sing in verse 14. This army of angels That's weird. Come Christmas caroling. That's weird. 
And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's crazy. The infinitely glorious God of the universe is offering peace to sinners who have turned away from them and broken his law and want to be their own God. And even crazier than that, he is pleased with said sinners if they turn to the baby in faith. And that's what Christmas is about. The baby asleep in that manger is all about God actually doing something about your sin and doing something about my sin. It's about him sending his son to take our place on the cross, to take away our guilt and shame, to forgive us, to adopt us, and to love on us forever. But let me clear up another common Christmas misconception, okay? This is number four, I think. Sorry I'm ruining your Christmas. Sometimes you hear verse 14 translated this way, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Unfortunately, our culture has taken this to mean that during Christmas time, we are to share with others, buy presents, etc., basically practice goodwill toward everyone and get the warm fuzzies for doing so. There's nothing wrong with that. Do that. Please do that, because it is the most wonderful time of the year. But that's not what this verse means. It doesn't mean go and do good things to other people. It means, as the ESV captures it, on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. It means God's good pleasure with mankind, God's pleasure with sinful man, peace with whom God is pleased. But who can get in God's good graces? Who can have peace with the holy, glorious God? Who who can please God? How can sinful human beings ever be made right with an infinitely glorious and holy God and then please Him? How is that possible? Well, we can't please God by doing anything. We can't earn it. We have to receive it. Alec Motier said, there's nothing that comes closer to ultimate blasphemy than to work for your salvation. To say, but there must be something that I must do. Because that is to deny that Jesus is the Savior whom God sent. Just banish it from your mind. God sent us a Savior, not to half save us. Not to pay a deposit so that we might do the rest. But actually to save us from our sins eternally. To go to a cross and cry out, it is finished. Nothing more to be done. We receive the grace of God for our eternal salvation. Peace with God is only possible because of and through faith in that baby taking a nap in that dirty manger. It's only through the life and death of Jesus Christ And when we repent of our sins and we trust in his life, death, and resurrection, then the good news of the gospel really becomes true of us. God is no longer mad at us. And that's why the angels are singing glory to God in Luke 2. Because God did something to remedy our messed up condition. The angels are telling you that God is no longer mad at you if you turn to the baby in the manger in faith. And you trust in him, and you rest in what he has done. Now, you may not want to hear it that God is angry, but it's true. 
Apart from Christ, He is angry at us and our sin. Tim Keller says, God's anger is different from ours. We are quick to anger. We make people pay who have wronged us, and then nonetheless we nurse our grievances. God is slow to anger, provides for our forgiveness, and then remembers our sins no more. Only the cross would reveal what it costs God to punish sin without punishing us. So the bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. And the good news is that God is far better and more loving than we could ever hope or ever imagine. And the birth of Jesus Christ backs all of that up. Will you accept his gift today? If you do, God won't be mad at you anymore. If you do, God will be pleased with you forever, all because of what Jesus has done. That's good news. The problem is that the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season is really just a picture of how we all really are with God. We're all trying to do stuff, to earn our way, to get stuff done instead of resting in what Jesus has already done for us. That means that Christmas is not about what must we do. What must we do to be made right with God? What must we do to turn away his anger? What must I do to please him? That's not the question, what must we do? The question is, who can we trust? Trust the Savior or trust ourselves? It's not about checking things off the list. It's about resting in Jesus. It's not about what must we do, but who can we trust? And the answer is Jesus. But people don't want a Savior. They want a list that they can check off, even in the church. Even as Christians, we still have this default tendency to think that we need to do something to sort ourselves up, to clean up the mess that we have made. And so what Christmas does is it challenges our what-must-we-do assumptions. What must I do? I have to do something to fix the mess. Think about the shepherds who came to worship the baby Jesus. They didn't come to worship a to-do list. The wise men that brought all those gifts fit for a king, they did not lay their gifts before a set of instructions. And King Herod did not feel threatened by a list of do's and don'ts. Why? Because Christmas is about a person. Christmas is about God's Son coming down to rescue us, to do everything necessary so that we could have peace with God. And so what do you do? You just receive it. You open the empty hands of faith, the empty hands of trust, And you just receive it. And you have to do this every day for the rest of your life. You just have to receive the good news. I had to do it this morning. You know what I said to myself? Receive it, dummy. (laughs) I did. Because I was struggling to believe that God loved me. I know my sin. I was like, oh, still just feel like he's frustrated with me. And I just said, you know what? Just receive the gift, dummy. So I did. Look at verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So imagine the shepherds showing up and knocking on doors in the middle of the night, mind you. you got to picture this. Excuse me. We just saw an angel, and he spoke to us out there in the fields. Actually, there were thousands of angels Believe it or not, an army of Christmas caroling angels, if you can imagine that. Anyways, while we were watching our sheep, these singing angels appeared out of nowhere, and they told us that God is not mad at us, and the proof of this is that we would find a newborn baby wrapped up tight like a mummy and taking a nap in a dirty food trough. I know this sounds weird, but is there by chance a baby in this house asleep in a nasty feeding trough? That's what happened. They had to go look for the baby. But remember... Bethlehem was small, so it wouldn't take too long to figure out where the unmarried teenage kids who just had a baby who they claimed to be the son of God was staying at, right? You'd find that house pretty quick. And they did. And when all in Bethlehem heard the story the shepherds shared, Luke tells us they wondered. And Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. And Luke tells us then that the shepherds returned to work the next morning and glorified and praise God. And that's what we should do today. What all of these folks did. Wonder, treasure, ponder, glorify, and praise. Which means we shouldn't have a merry little Christmas. Because there's nothing little about God coming down to save us, is there? Instead, we should have a merry, magnificent Christmas this year. And you will have a merry, magnificent Christmas this year if you wonder and treasure and ponder and glorify and praise. You will have a merry, magnificent Christmas this year if you hear the angels singing to you this morning, cheer up, God's not mad at you. And that can only be true for those who are trusting in Christ alone. For those who are trusting in Christ alone, Tim Chester says, we are in his son. The father loves his son, and now he loves us in his son. In other words, the father loves us with the same love that he has for his own son. Our job is to go sunbathing in the father's love. Close your eyes and sit back in your chair and feel the warmth of his love on your skin. If you're in Christ... You always bring pleasure to the Father. He sees you and smiles with delight. Now, if you are not in Christ, you're not a Christian today, you haven't turned from your sin and living for yourself, I would say to you today, turn, repent, quit living for you, and look to Christ crucified for you and say, I believe in you. I put my hope in you. I put my trust in you. And you will be saved. And God will no longer be mad at you anymore. And if you already are in Christ, cheer up. Because God loves you just like he loves Jesus. So go sunbathing in God's love today. That's your job this week. I know you have a list of things to do, presents to buy, groceries, cleaning up the house for relatives coming. But your primary job this week is to go sunbathing in your heavenly Father's love.
and to feel the warmth of his love on your skin and to see him smiling with delight when he looks at you. That's what Christmas is about. God smiling at you because he's not mad at you. Well, we hear the angels sing this morning the words to a song we all know, but we should slow down and think about what they're saying. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. I love that. Is that how you think of Jesus? Is that how you describe him? He is heaven's all-gracious king, not heaven's all-cranky king, okay? The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Can you let your heart sit in solemn stillness and hear the angels sing? Still, Moving on from that moment in Luke 2, still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled. And still their heavenly music floats over all the weary world. And listen, our world is weary, isn't it? And their song, their, their music floats out all over our weary world, which is just so tired of COVID and masks and blah, 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 blah. We're just sick of it all. Their song, their music is floating out there. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing, and ever over its babble sounds, the blessed angels sing. I love the imagery of that hymn, the Tower of Babel. Everybody's language confused, and we're just all talking over each other now, aren't we? And here are these angels hovering, their songs going out, and we're just like... And they're just singing their song. God's not mad at you. You can have peace. And ye, beneath life's crushing load. That's where we got our Christmas title series. Whose forms are bending low. Who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Is that you this season? Just wore out with life. Tired, exhausted, run down. Just wanting some peace. Look now. For glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. It's like, just pull your car over on the side of the road and just rest. Stop trying to climb up the steps. Just stop and rest and receive the good news. And then now there's a future element. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old when with The ever-circling years shall come the time foretold when peace, peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling. I love that. And the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. It's coming a day when Jesus returns to make all things new. The time foretold when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling. And she's like... Peace over all the earth. And then we will send back the song, which now the angels sing, and we will say, glory to God in the highest.
That's your homework this week. Rest, receive, and just say glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. You had every right to slam the door shut on us after Adam and Eve sinned and have nothing more to do with us except to pour out your anger and wrath. We all in Adam rightly deserve that because we all have sinned in Adam and turned away. And yet, you were so merciful and gracious, you came immediately and said, one of your descendants is going to come, Adam, and crush that old snake. And then you sent the angels to announce the birth of your son, Jesus. We have peace with you, and you are pleased with us because we are in Christ. And in response to that, we can only say, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Say it with me, Grace. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. In Jesus' name we say it. Amen.